Welcome, Wheatland family and friends. Thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to Cross Reference, a podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. I am Luke LaDuc, senior pastor here at Wheatland, and I am joined weekly by our co-host, Dr. Dan Spanger, professor of history and chair of the Arts and Sciences Department at Lancaster Bible College. As a professor of history, Dan is a bright mind and engaging lecturer, and as an elder here to our Wheatland family, Dan has a warm heart for the gospel of Jesus and our life together as the body of Christ. And I am thrilled to dig more deeply into the scriptures with him each week as we tackle questions, explore connections, and generally unpack the sermon from the previous Sunday. Along the way, we'll take a few side streets, a winding road or two, but we'll never be quite so lost that you won't enjoy the scenery. Thanks for coming along. Hello, Wheatland. We are back. This is Cross Reference with uh, Dr. Dan Spanger and and uh, Reverend Luke LeDuc. Uh, we had a, a bit of a week there, probably just more of an issue of getting schedules done than finding a time when Luke and I can get together um, on Zoom, which is where we do these recordings. So we apologize for being a week behind. But um, what's nice, Luke, about the way you frame this is you've given us a chance in the introduction, Ephesians 1.1, to set this up so we've got mm-hmm. some sort of broad work being done in that first sermon is just sort of narrowed in yeah. on uh, the second sermon yeah, um, and so- uh, actually a week behind uh, if i could if i could live all of my life just oh, a right, week behind uh that would be that would be great now were you trying to teach us something or some theological metaphor in the time you took to teach us what it's like to be without our pastor or something yeah no not no at deeper all. meaning just, in that uh, no deeper meaning no deeper we've come meaning. to expect something like irony from you yeah well or no, no theology. Yeah, just uh, human frailty. Human maybe frailty. Maybe there's the the lesson in it. Lesson all. learned. So, so that we didn't get a chance. I didn't get a chance to ask this question because we haven't gotten together yet. But, but, and I think you did a little bit of this. But just to refresh, uh, why Ephesians? Why now? Yeah, I think part of you know part of what my I said it in the in the first sermon. Um, part of it is that we're always trying to go back and forth between the testaments to sort of live our creed, which is the entire T of scripture is uh, one story with Jesus at the center of it mm. and leading to um, uh, new life in Jesus and, and the new world and all of that. So, you know, that's part of it. We were just in Genesis. So let's go to the new Testament. But um, part of, part of the reason for landing in Ephesians has a lot to do with um, us coming out of COVID as a Mm -hmm. congregation. And um, although right now it feels like everyone I know (laughs) has COVID right now. So I guess we're, you know, whatever whatever we do with that, um, fortunately it seems to be uh, not as uh, uh, heavy a hit this time with with the people that I know that are getting it, but... um, Coming out of COVID, I think what I wanted to do was sort of come back and look at our life uh, together as a church family. And I think uh, churches everywhere are having to regroup and rebuild and rethink um, Mm -hmm. who's there since COVID, who's not there since COVID. um, How can we minister to the family, the body of Christ that has been through this? And I think Ephesians is one of those letters of Paul that um, is warm and personal, yes, um, but it's sort of dealing with the church family as a whole and its whole life in the Mm. world, and it's got this deep theology at the beginning and identity, which, of course, we're always wrestling with, and then it has at the last half this practical um, application of what this does for our life together, and so I just thought Ephesians and Paul would be a great place for us to sort of reevaluate our own life and our own Mm. relationships um, in light of what we've experienced as sort of fracturing and fragmentation and um, solitude and isolation, which of course Ephesians is, has a lot to do about unity and family. Right. 
Not yeah, and I and I think you said in the first sermon. I don't know that I, I wrote this down. I just just clicked with me though. Is you you made this point that that um, we've been in Genesis, this first part of the story, that Paul is is helping to point us to how that story ends or where that story goes. And right, the, the thought of the idea that if you said to Paul, "Hey, Paul, have you read your Old Testament?" He may not know what you're talking about. Right. I'm not sure that he saw it as an Old and New Testament. He saw it as all one revelation from God. Yeah. And that continuity, I think, does come out in the way that Paul thinks through the body of Christ, being the Jews who've come through faith in Abraham and the church and the Galatians now who are who are um, added into the body later. Mm -hmm. um, and he uses mm -hmm. the agricultural metaphor, you know, um, once, once you add the branch back into the right grafting. to the tree, yeah. Yeah, grafting and then using the word adoption. So I, I th there's that too that piece of of um, unity that that, yeah. that the same story, same plot line. Which yeah. I, I appreciate it because I, I do see that in 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 Paul yeah. specifically in Ephesians. Yeah, yeah, specifically in Ephesians, and yeah. I think that was the thing that I started. I led the whole sermon with uh, two weeks ago was the idea that if what we spent the time in Genesis one through eleven was seeing God's original humanity that He created um, sort of disintegrate and 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 become right. undone and in in um antagonism toward him i think in ephesians you're getting this glorious theological but also very intensely practical image of what it looks like for all things to be put back together in a new humanity and right. where that's going so yeah that was yeah because i think the genesis story one one thing that's hard as a historian when you read genesis is you realize that Genesis doesn't, I mean, it, it's not that it doesn't accept the nations, but it doesn't accept that there are multiple narratives. It doesn't hmm. accept that there are multiple plot lines. There seems to be one right. plot line. The plot line is right. all the Babylons, as you pointed out, coming into Genesis 11, all the Babylons, they're setting up the Tower of Babel and the alternate human perspective, we define right or wrong, and those that that cede to Christ or, or Yahweh, the power to do that. And I think in that regard, if, if Paul's asking the listeners of Ephesians, the readers, to say, you need to see the world the same way. That means they have to look around in Rome and say, are you kidding me? Like, yeah, right. you think this, I mean, I get those little piddly nations that used to live aren't like that, but you can't tell me that Rome is another one of these examples. They're the, it's the most peaceful, most powerful, most productive. Yeah. You know, how, how could you possibly believe that this is another one of those petty kingdoms that God right. is brushing aside in this great redemptive plan? Yeah, it was actual and real progress for right. the human story and condition in one right. sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to no, see Rome powerful. and Babel is really, yeah, it's fascinating because then you say, oh, I, I'm supposed to see. And I think this yeah. is right. When you made the connection for me, which I appreciate is like, yeah, you're right. So if the stories are all the same story, mm -hmm. then you could see maybe not Noah connected directly to Babylon, but some regard. Oh, this is evil. This is this is an alternate plan. This is against God's design. And we're supposed to seek our loyalty with another king, which yeah. I, you made this point in your first sermon that and maybe this is the other point of, of connection you were trying to draw us into. And I think you did was the idea that the tension that the, the, the Ephesians feel between the claim of loyalty to Christ mm. and the Roman call to be loyal to Caesar and the Greek way right. of life. That tension is really not much different from Noah's tension and probably not much right. different from our tension. Right. I think this is what yeah. you're connecting for us. I think I am. And I think what makes that so tricky is we tend to look back and, and you're a historian. So uh, I, you know, you're, you're going to be really useful in this, whereas I've only getting sort of hints at it, but um, you know, we tend to look back and think that let's say for, let's just go, not go all the way back to um, you know, the old Testament yet, but just go back here to Ephesians. We tend to think that it would have been so apparent to them that Rome was this evil right. empire and that what they were, and, and I don't think that was always their sense of it. Like mm -hmm. there was a real tension that they were weighing real human progress, real right. Um, right. economic prosperity. And of course, not, not equality. Like we might think of, economic equality or social good in a sense, but compared to where humanity had been prior to this, they could look at the Roman empire and see real actual um, conditions have improved for them and their, and, and, and their people. And right. 
So right. I think it's hard for us to remember that that. But isn't that? Attempt. I mean, isn't that the case with Babel too? I mean, and yeah. you made this point, which I thought was yeah. really great. And I, I don't mean to go back to Genesis again, but yeah. you made this point that that the tower was only part of the story. The city around it was the other part of the story. And right. what, what's interesting there is you don't have Paul, you don't have the witness of the spirit to tell people, hey, this isn't right. This isn't mm -hmm. the kingdom. God himself had to break it up. But right. in a sense, Christ giving the Holy Spirit to the church is the church is now going to break up Rome. I mean, that wasn't the intent mm -hmm. in one sense, but right. Rome will collapse as the church starts yeah. to grow right. in, in a much right. more constructive way than just breaking of languages. But I, yeah. I, th I think, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see that, that same story and, it, and to realize that Babel seemed just as good to them as Rome seemed to them as probably our modern world seems to us. Well, yeah. And, and then when we do go back to um, the Genesis 1 through 11 narrative and, and we got, we have, um, you know, Cain and Abel and you have Cain building a city and that, like they were really good. Like I, that's what I tried to mention right. in that, that like real serious progress came through the cities that were built. Right. There. there was a sense in which those were really positive contributions and God was working in that. And yet, <laughs> so that, that does help us feel the tension. And I think that helps us today to um, not see it just as this, um, well, let me use a different word, uh, this stark line between good and evil right. in in our own tensions that we're living in. So it's not just that simple to say right. everything that we experience in the modern world is good or everything that we experience in the modern world is evil. It, it, it helps us appreciate the yeah. real tension and the real work that it is to live inside of our own time and space right. with these loyalties to another king and another kingdom. Yeah, and, and I think what, you know, what, what we, what, yeah, in that regard, we need to come to grips with it. We need to realize the tension if we don't see it or don't feel it. And, and sometimes part of that is, I think, it, what Paul is getting to say, especially as they had reasons for why they would believe, oh, Rome has to, or we are a Greek superior, whatever mm -hmm. the case may be. And the reasons were probably in some ways decent ones, mm -hmm. um, given the progress of humanity and where they were. But they had to recalibrate their thinking to say, oh, no, this this we need to be in tension, not fighting Rome. That, that's right. something that's in attention. No, but we yeah. need to actually realize that we can't be blinded to the fact that tension is there. We can't pretend right. it's not. We have to right. actually recognize it and, and see it. And I think the only way to do that is the way that actually Paul does it. And that is to always be pointing to not 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 being blind to where you've come from to be able to appreciate the real progress, but never to look at the moment as absolute, yeah. but to look to the telos as right. uh, to where all things are going and judge where you're at in this right. moment, not look at where you've been and judge them. And so right. it, it's a, that that's not easy to do right. um, because anyway, I don't, I, well, it's, it, there's, there's no reflex for it in one sense. Right. I mean, you're not, you're not going to automatically do it since one you can see and feel and you've been trained to think in and you're using those terms to live. The other one requires learning. I think this is what Paul is talking about, but by renewing your mind that, mm -hmm. that you have to learn to see and understand and imagine what this reality is. And I think this is sort of yeah. the point I was making in the, in the revelation sermon was it's that to see and imagine that reality, then come back. Yeah, and the end this, of the story. Then you carry yeah. it back and you go, Oh, wait a minute. That's not what this is. And then we have to start realizing there's more tension here probably than we initially thought. Yeah. And, and I think it's Paul's, um, Paul's language that all of his work is just shot through with, which is the, the making known of a mystery that was mm -hmm. once hidden and now is revealed. And, and basically that, that uh, is the plan that God has set forth in Christ in the fullness of time to unite right. all things right. in and under him. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and there's no, it, it's easy, you know, I think it's easy to get sort of an autopilot mode, get comfortable with the terms of your culture and say, Oh, mm -hmm. this is what it looks like. It seems to be the right thing. It's always seems to be a bit of work to keep saying, is Christ saying something different? Is Christ, is Christ defining this differently than I would have it defined? I think this is where Augustine really wrestles with the city of God that the, hmm. City of God is always on always on different terms, and he 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 wouldn't use tell us. So I think that's the right term, 
you know, he, he says, you know, it's, it's ultimately by what motivates you. The love of God motivates the city of God. The love for self motivates the city mm-hmm. of man. Mm-hmm. And, and both of them can, can fight poverty and both of them can right. build better technology and do wonderful things. But one of them is actually doing it for love of God. And I, I think when Augustine gives you that, he, he does give you another set of eyes, the same way that Paul is giving you for the telos. Where is this mm-hmm. going? One is leading yeah. to death, one is leading to life. There's other, other things we can yeah, do. Yeah, that's really helpful. That. Yeah. So, it, so that, that's, that was a good place to start. And I apologize again for the community here. We didn't give you last week a time to process Luke's sermon there. But as you move into uh, verse three and forward um, in chapter one, you're getting, I think, at this idea, at least for me, you were getting at this idea of how to like step back. You said meta. And I don't know if anybody <laughs> sort of caught what you're getting at there, right. but other than repeating a term is meta to get to get above or behind. Mm-hmm. And so you've got this thing you see, and then you actually walk away from the story, like a character outside the pages and realize you're reading a book that's, that's getting meta. And so you, you, you get us outside of it for a little bit to help kind of look at it, which I think is what we're getting at here that we have to mm-hmm. accept that our cultural terms we're living in same way for the Ephesians can't, we can't simply accept it. We've got to get, and you use the idea of metaphor, like, a term that helps us look at it as if we're outside of it in a sense. I don't know if that's right. what you're driving at. Yeah. But I think that's part of that too. That is helpful. I don't know if that's what I was driving at either, but I like the idea of that aspect of the metaphor. And, and, and yeah, it is. It's a, it is a helping us from the inside to step out and see what's going on there. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Which, you, which I think you gave us. And, I, and the yeah. metaphor you used for this, which I think is obviously Paul's, but if I were to ask a, a good reformed folk, the metaphor would be predestination and then the mm-hmm. consequence down the road would be adoption at some point. But you, right. I think you sourced it the way that, that Paul seemed to do it. You begin with the metaphor of adoption. And then you right. say, if that's the whole story, right. the mechanism for that is this, it's not the whole story is predestination. Right. And he uses adoption to make his point. Adoption is the whole yeah. point. Yeah. And I was helped by, uh, I think that is what I was trying to say, Dan. And I was helped by uh, a couple of people along the way with thinking through this. One of them is a guy named Trevor Burke. I think I mentioned him to you before we started recording, who's written a book um, called Adopted into God's Family, Exploring a Pauline Metaphor, which I I thought was really, um, I haven't read the whole thing yet. Uh, I just got it last Thursday or Wednesday. And uh, spent a lot of time in it at the end of the week. But one of the things that I thought was really helpful was him walking me through Romans and Galatians and Ephesians um, and saying adoption seems to be the one metaphor that Paul uses for the subjective experience of being saved in the life of his people. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, that, that, that's helpful for me because then that does, you know, he talks about there is an objective side to our rescue and from God's, you know, from God's um, perspective in a sense. And that is along the lines of some of these other words, justification, that sort of thing. But when Paul's talking about adoption, He's, he's queuing in on the subjective side. What is it that we experience as we are being brought from death to life? And, and that, to me, opened up uh, uh, some helpful vistas, I think. And what and the idea of metaphor, and I, I didn't think of this, and I know there was a comment after the sermon, so it didn't dawn on me because I think um, the way that I think through metaphor is not that metaphor or simile, as you were hopefully mm-hmm. giving us a little grammar lesson, by the way, hats, hats off to you as a history professor yeah. to give a grammar lesson. If you could do more of those, it would be great. <laughs> talk about gerunds and verbs. For, and ad- yeah, well, and I'll have to like parts have, of speech. Our, have our angry grammarians, as I, was, as I titled them. <laughs> a punctuation their, sermon. There's nothing yeah, wrong with that. We yeah. could talk about what a semicolon is. You could have a as whole a guy, As sermon. a guy like you who has to read paper after oh, paper, my Lord. I'm sure. Uh, That's not. Purgatory is a Catholic concept. I, I hate to, I hate to <laughs> occupy it every semester, but I seem to live there. Um, but but the idea of metaphor, mm-hmm. and, but I, I work in them a lot as I think through them, and I hadn't right. thought of this tension that people might feel, and that is a metaphor is not fiction. Mm-hmm. And, I, and right. I think someone could say, oh, oh, a metaphor is a way of looking at a reality and then fictionalizing it. And so you're talking about a fiction. And I know you I know you weren't saying that, um, but right. maybe just a chance to clarify that when you say metaphor, you're not saying we we take me my metaphor that we're going to create a false picture of it to help understand it. And then we'll go back right. to the reality. But these two right. are the reality and the metaphor are connected somehow. I don't know if you want to yeah. unpack yeah, I that. Think, 
That's true. Um, and I, I can see where uh, I think someone would not want to hear, well, adoption is just a metaphor for right. your relationship with God. They want, what, what we want to say is no, something actual and real is happening as we are right. being made that a child of God in Christ, and that changes everything. Absolutely, yes. Um, but I, I think that what makes a metaphor powerful, as, as I think probably you can help me flesh out here too, is that it is, there is something that has really been experienced. It is a different thing that we have actually and really experienced, and Paul's using that word adoption, something that right. is no, it's a known reality, and applying it to another right. reality that helps us understand the other reality that feels abstract in a different right. way and in a more intimate way. So yes, metaphor is not fiction. It is right. another reality that helps us understand a reality that we're that has been too big or, or distant from us. Or something. right. And one of the one of the tension points and where people are and where that's right, I, if I were to say the idea mm -hmm. of metaphor is fiction is right, is that we're always using some cultural experience of it that never lives up to the reality. So to say, and if adoption is the metaphor, we say, well, you're adopted, but that's a metaphor because what Americans mean by adoption, what it means by adoption in an African tribal community, or let's say in an ancient Roman period, mm -hmm. all the cultural expressions of that term are actually just fractional and partial. According at the, but if you, if you go through that experience, you go, that is in one sense what this is like. It's not right. the whole sense. The and it's not sense. like, yeah. it's not, not the sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, this is at least part of the sense of it feels. Because one of the things when you say adoption, which I found intriguing as I was thinking through it, is that the Roman view of adoption, our view of adoption is very, very different. Right. And that when Paul says adoption, these Roman Ephesians would have been not using the terms you and I are using. And so yeah. we would... We would use our idea of adoption, usually mm -hmm. parents grabbing up a small child and taking care of them until they become adulthood mm -hmm. and helping to care for them yeah. um, as very different than the Romans have. So which of these experiences right. the actual adoption that Paul's talking about? Right. Well, neither. Right. They're, they're right. both a cultural story that helps us understand what that's like. Right. Yeah. And that's an interesting thing. Um, and I, I have to say that before this past week, I had not done much reading on yeah. Uh, adoption in the Greco-Roman world. And, and, and again, of course, Paul, I don't think just has the Greco-Roman world in view. Sure. He also has stuff going on in the Old Testament. Um, although I've read pages and pages, uh, and there's this big discussion about whether we actually see anything like what Paul is talking about in the Old Testament. So I'm not going to get into that. But yeah, uh, like from my cursory understanding, and you might know more about this as you've taught, you know, classes on this time period, first century AD, Roman world stuff, empire stuff. Um, almost all the adoptions, that, at least that I read about this past week, in that context, in, in the sort of AD 50s and, uh, you know, hundreds of years before that even, but certainly in the first century, was adult children being adopted by another family um, to carry on their line. To, uh, a line was ending, a line was in jeopardy, and it was an adult that was brought in, adult male actually, that was brought in to um, perpetuate that family name or that right. family, even that family cult, interestingly enough. Um, right. So yeah, there, there are, Paul, I don't think Paul was writing this and the Ephesians were thinking about Bethany Christian services right, and, right. And, and that sort of thing, like what we might, our minds might rush to when we think of adoption. Right. And, it, and then it becomes a metaphor. It helps to actually think of other ways that metaphor could be experienced, which is probably only going to flesh out further, you know, what God is doing in our adoption. Right. And so, and so right. learning and it. And this has been some of the things you've helped us do through the part on Genesis is to put these terms back in the original context, because then it even fills further out the way we experience those things. So right. to hear that, that, you know, I think you're right. And the, the, the one piece I'd add to the Roman adoption piece is that it was typically done with adults. And it was actually taking someone of a different family line and different name and making them equal in identity to the person who's adopting them. Mm -hmm. So once you adopt someone, they, they become the inheritor of the name, all the property, in fact, it, when the adopted father dies, the adopted son oftentimes get called by the same name. He's mm -hmm. treated publicly as a, sometimes the same person. So there's a, there's a whole 
different political and social context here that probably that wouldn't we wouldn't think of. We don't we don't right. deal with adoption in quite those terms. Yeah. But if you add them up, and I and again, right. you could also say, and I think you made this point at the end, the way we look at adoption when we grab a whole helpless child up and we give them a home, that also works. That's, right. That's right. Also part of this truth. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, so now I got, I got to, I got to, I got to pick at one thing. Maybe you can explain it a little bit when you got into the discussion of metaphor, and then you started with a metaphor. Yeah. And you had me going down a road. And I, I got really interested, and then it seemed like the the there was a, a sign popped up in front of the road said you shall go no further. <laughs> and then I had to get onto a different road. So you you started with this towns in New England, and and you and you look yeah. like you're building to this crescendo about how all the towns have a church at the middle, and this church yeah. is to find the town. And then you jumped abruptly to the to the hill, Gray, Mount Greylock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, what he's going to say now is, if you stand from up there, the church steeples connect all the towns. Isn't that amazing? God himself, Christ. I just, I just wonderful. <laughs> that whole second sermon set up in my head. <laughs> and then oh, he came back to the churches. Yeah. What's going on yeah. there? Uh, I'm just not that clever, Dan. <laughs> that, I wish we'd have had this conversation before I preached. Then I could have gone there. And then in the end, we would have come back and it would have been this gorgeous inclusio. But dang it. The church defines yeah. all of history the way it defines it. Yeah. Well, that wasn't your point. That wasn't but what was your point there? And I think it was a good yeah. one. Actually, I, once I got my, my head out of my own little world there, yeah, no, got I, into what you were doing, I, I did appreciate a, this idea of getting yeah. up at a view and taking in yeah. all of these little yeah. vignettes right. and turning them into, a, which I think is what Paul is doing here. So yeah. I know that's no. what you're intending to do. I don't know if you want to unpack that. No, that's, that's so funny. I love that. I, I love how, um, I love how you can just the whole idea of communication and how this works and <laughs> words create worlds and all of that. And, and then we're, words also, uh, destroy worlds as I did with you <laughs> right. at the end when the world came crashing down when I just <laughs> dropped it and it shattered. I just had to get uh, on a spaceship and go to another one. That's all. Yeah. That takes me time. But no, I yeah, I was simply wanting to say, you know, I, I'm talking about all these little towns and how they have their own peculiar character, but they have this one thing they share and that Terry Lynn and I and our family for the last 20 years have been enjoying all of these little towns uh, in their own right. But then you get up on the top of Greylock and you look down and you realize, oh, wow, these are all part of one vast. And this is probably what I didn't do, didn't say. They're all part mm -hmm. of one vast thing connected by the steeples. But um, okay. <laughs> to, to say that would have been beautiful. I didn't do that. I didn't think of that. You thought of that. But all I was saying is we've experienced each one of these or, or a lot of these little towns mm. individually for mm. what they are. But it is a different thing to stand at the top of that and see them all laid out at once and how mm. overwhelming and beautiful that is. And I think that's what Paul is doing in verses three through 14. Now, first of all, I had to start with that. So I had an excuse for not dealing with every one of these <laughs> right. verses because yeah. Like, as you, I don't, did you have this, I had this experience when that's being read, those three through 14, yeah. I like, I'm really sympathetic, because when he starts with, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, I want to stop and think about how incredible that. Yeah, there's, a, there's a couple sermons right there. Yeah, and then he says, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then I'm just like, oh, wait, now I don't have time to think about that first one. Now I got to think about what does it mean to be blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing, but mm. in heavenly places. And so it's like this overwhelming thing that if you're trying to get the, the full, suck the marrow out of each one of those theological bones that are building this image here you it, you would never get through it and that's how i feel it when i read it it's like oh gotcha. as soon as i start thinking about this then i'm he's i've already missed what he said next because mm -hmm. that one's as important or maybe more important or connects differently so you've already complicated the metaphor with towns and now bones so i won't yeah. ask how those oh, connect but yeah. so let me understand because that's helpful i i didn't uh, i thought again my brain being somewhere else yeah. That the the towns are all of these beautiful theological statements Paul makes, and the Greylock Mountain is the sermon you're going to deal with yeah. them. I was thinking of this as the history of Israel and the, like, all of these things, and Paul's giving us a, a sort of mountaintop view of all of this history. As he's see how clever you are, Span. I don't like, think that, that's clever. That would, I just think a, that's that would have been an interesting, yeah, getting my own little head. Right. But no. but the, but one thing one thing to connect here to that view, and so the view 
the view is you're taking a singular spot to help us understand right. all of these amazing towns. And I think the encouragement right. to me, therefore, is to once you get the view is then to go back and spend some time in the town. Right. So right. I, I appreciate right. that. I don't think yeah. I got that in the sermon, but I, I think yeah. that's a really important point to hear. Right. And the other part being here that that if we think of this as and this metaphor of, of, of scale and scope, trying to see mm-hmm. the whole thing. Immensity, that, yeah. Right, the immensity, that, that one thing that you, you've been drawing us to the whole time is that we must always come back to this massive story. And you just used mm-hmm. the word telos, and I want to just come back and visit that for a second, because if, in, if we combine the two concepts we're working on, scale and scope, this massive story, and this mm-hmm. concept of adoption, that one of the ways our view of it can't measure up is we don't adopt for some massive end. We're usually adopting in the moment, helping a child, helping a mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. And it has a very, and a very important and a good focus. It's right, that it's right. Good, but that it, it can't be what God is doing in adoption because he's adopting into this massive story. That, that's actually the, right. the, the scope of this adoption is this thing with this telos or this end. So right. I don't know if you want to unpack the role well, of that end in this concept of yeah. adoption. No, I think that's really important. It's one of the things that sort of I had in my head and even I had in my notes, but just for time's sake, sort of fell off the table at the end, which always happens, it feels like. Um, But yeah, it's interesting. It it was sort of, maybe it was implicit, but not explicit because I said um, one of the points, I, I just tried to make two points about how adoption as a metaphor helps us process the immensity of all of that three to 14. And um, the the second one that I said is that adoption is not simply a rescue out of pity. Uh, You know, like where we're at right now is such a a bad spot and God's going to adopt us. And it is that at one level, but it's to be loved and cherished in the way that God has loved and cherished his only begotten son from eternity. Mm -hmm. And, and what I was thinking in my mind was, um, the way in which Christ comes revealing God's plan and living out God's plan and then revealing that not only is he rescuing us from our sins in his death and resurrection, but in the fullness of time, as it says in verse 10, mm-hmm. God is uniting all things in Jesus, things in heaven and on earth. And that, that hasn't actually exactly happened finally and fully yet. And so that there is this still future leaning and future going place but and that's part of our adoption that we are adopted to participate in that and to become Mm -hmm. part of that story in a way that if you think of our own modern adoption we can't write the end of those stories you know we can we can bring them in and and we can bring a child into our home and we can um be the best parent that we can be and all that, but we can't write the end of that story for them in the way that our adoption by God in Jesus is going to this definite place. So I think, yeah, that's an interesting thing that you- Now, my only other complaint about the sermon is that you, you, you mentioned the name of Katy Perry and this, Mm. this, this Mm. has been a struggle, a spiritual struggle for me. (laughs) I, I, I kind of winced. I wasn't know if I was waiting for lightning to land or maybe- First and fl- I wasn't sure what was supposed to happen there, but uh, right. that's a first for me. Well, I okay, I feel your pain, but grant <laughs> to me that at least I I used her as the lesser, the 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 weaker Fair of, enough. of Fair the enough. analogies as far as uh, her metaphorical use of plastic bag drifting in. The- <laughs> well, let me just say the way that pew cushions can divide churches. Yeah. Trying to figure out who's worse for us is, uh, you know, Katy <laughs> Perry or, um, or, or Taylor Swift. Or Taylor Swift. Yeah, well, that could certainly divide a church. Yeah, I think we can get sure. on either end of that one. Yeah, exactly. That's but, but you know, there are the, there are a lot of cultural metaphors that are helpful. I think that you certainly picked up some, uh, some at least one fairly pretty one. I'm not sure that the, uh, yeah, I think the Katy Perry, that was a pretty bad metaphor. I have to agree with you on that point. Um, but, what, but I want to, and I, I had this in my notes as I was thinking through your sermon, because I think Again, things that you, things that you were able to sort of, and you can't do everything in a sermon. Obviously, this this makes your metaphor very useful to us because right. these spaces ought not be overlooked. They're so important. Um, so I'm I'm glad you've clarified that because that really helps me. I think even deal with this text. Um, but it, in this in this idea of adoption, and and you didn't say it this way, Luke. So if I'm stretching it, but it it you made both of these points that adoption 
is not only an entering in, but it's a bringing out. And there's mm. these two motions that have to yeah. happen. And, yeah. and, and I think this goes back to your first sermon about this tension we live in, that we have to see ourselves moving out of a space and then moving into a space. And we have to be called out of one family. Yeah. We have to be called into yeah. another family. And that, and that can be jarring and difficult. And I, mm -hmm. I think even as we've dealt with some women people in our church who've gone through adoption themselves, coming back yeah. to the psychological crisis of, oh, I, I was never one person. I've always been two. I, I right. belong somewhere else, yeah. but then I wasn't, yeah. I couldn't be there and I had to belong somewhere else. Mm -hmm. In some sense, this, this becomes our reality as adoption is to own this fact that we see ourselves always moving out of one space and then right. definitely into another one. Yeah, I think that's <clears throat> some of the stuff I get in over my head really quickly, yeah. especially as we start talking about like um, our own, our own children and, or, and even our own contemporaries experience of adoption and, and identity and that stuff. That's, right. that's hard stuff. Um, that's tricky, tricky stuff. And I'm not, I, I'm certainly not uh, experienced enough to speak to all of that, all the nuances of that. Yeah. But I, I do think, um, to me, it's clear that one of the one of the examples that would have been at the forefront, I think, of Paul's mind as he talks about adoption, especially adult adoption. There is how um, the old the old connections, the old familial um, powers over the child in an adult adoption now, all of their loyalties and their duties and responsibilities now are transferred definitively mm. to this new family that they're brought into. And I think I was, I didn't mention this in the sermon, but maybe you and I were talking about it before we went live with this podcast. And that is um, like many of the emperors that succeeded emperors were actually not part of their family. They had right. to be adopted first, and then they were made um, the next Roman emperor. And I spent some time reading about was it Caligula and I, I and mm -hmm. Nero. I don't I don't remember. Mm -hmm. I don't remember my emperors and their order. But I, no, I Caligula followed Nero. That's correct. Yeah, and and so that they wow. he was brought Nero in followed like, Caligula. Yeah, Nero followed Caligula is what I thought, and that he was adopted. He was not part of of the family. Right. He was brought in to be that. Um, anyway, I I just feel like for Paul, and especially what we'll see him do later on about principalities and powers of the air and how we wrestle not against flesh and blood. There, there's this definitive allegiance of. Um, that has been transferred in that. And I don't think there's a one-to-one -one correlation yeah. between that and your former family identity, but I'm not trying right, to right. make that like you have to forget your former family and, and now be brought into this new family. Uh, you know, I, I'm not willing to say that, but I do think for what Paul has in mind here um, in these adult adoptions and the obligation that an adult son would have had to, a family to perpetuate that family and that actual right. family cult and that family story in, in this case is transferred to the new family into which he's adopted as an adult for just that purpose to yeah. carry on this other family's story and worship. Um, in, in, in well, you, you know, you make a good point. I, I, I would say, obviously there is some pieces about identity in here, but mm -hmm. you know, to understand family in the, in the Greco Roman world, or even in the ancient Jewish world is it, it had a lot to do with social standing place and position. And even when Jesus says, hate your mother and father, I don't think that's a personal statement about hating a person, but certainly hating your location as if I'm going to be identified as the son of, mm -hmm. and the daughter of mm -hmm. that can no longer be the thing that makes you who you are in your society. And it, if the church really is, and I think there's a lot in Ephesians about this church becoming our new mm -hmm. kingdom, and I think you make mm -hmm. this point about God, Christ being the sovereign, mm -hmm. that kingdom is a very social cultural impact on us. It isn't that I, I hate my mom or dad or I won't talk to them. Right. It just means when when I turn when I look to who I'm going to fit in be in society, my reference point is now this whole other economy called what Christ has made me as His son. And then if I'm a Jew and I'm in the family, keeping the family name means not associating with Gentile sorry, I can't do that anymore. I hate right. that tradition. Now I've got to do something that's different. So right. we don't have family, I don't think in our minds as a social political entity. We see it as personal yeah. relationships. 
Right. That doesn't quite define it in this period of time. Yeah, it doesn't get to the fullness and to right. the, yeah, it, it doesn't get into every, and I think there are still cultures today that do that, but certainly or do it more fully than our modern American mm. concept. Like um, even in America and in, in, in the modern West, perhaps we have this idea of um, what's the, what's the word where it's just like family doesn't mean this big it's your is yeah, it what, an extended your immediate family, family or yeah. we have this distinction nuclear between nuclear we have, we have very clear distinctions yeah right. nuclear immediate whereas those things were that that's that's a later innovation and and a later right. way of right. of talking about family in a way that wouldn't have been done right yeah. right so so, so, anyway. so i think you're right yeah well no, i think the importance there in my mind is that if you say you're adopted into the family the point i think you're making here luke is that this is all those connections, all of those structures, you're giving up in one sense. And, and it may mean that now you're going to do things that would violate your standing mm. in, in Jewish or Greek society, which is like here, it's not costly. If you don't like it, you don't like what your family does. I moved from New York to Pennsylvania. Yeah. My whole standing changes in, a, in an instant um, right. who I am, but that, yeah. that's not possible there. And so mm -hmm. to say to someone, you have to give up your whole location in society and then relocated in Christ, which means you're now going to cut across all these expectations and you're going to do yeah. things they think are reprehensible and right. you're going to take things on that they think are idiotic. Mm. I mean, that's it, socially, politically, that was a yeah. massive And you're change. going to leave, you're going to leave undone duties that you were yes. directly respect, right. responsible for in a sense. Right. Jesus said, go, you know, I want to go bury my father. Let other people yeah. do that. That's not just, a, I don't want him to decompose in my, you know, that's like a whole family of familial, you're abandoning your position in your society, your possibility for advance, all of that could change. Yeah. He says, yeah, that's, I got a yeah. different kingdom here. Right. We just don't, yeah. we don't feel that part of it. I don't think. Yeah. Not, and, and there's, yeah, I think you're right. That's the difficulty. Yeah. Hmm. And that, that's where, yeah, that's where this term adoption really, I think. And, and what you seem to, I think what you're doing with us is, and maybe this is something less deconstruction for the Roman and Jew and more construction for us because hmm. we don't have to deconstruct our, right. We have to actually construct for the first time the idea that we right. belong loyally to a body <laughs> that right. is our Roman and Greek Jew defined family, yeah. uh, which is now the church, which I think this is where we struggle. And this is the point I think you're making at the end, that this is no mere metaphor for us. We actually have to now construct a view of living in the body right. that imitates more of those sorts of pictures, like right. your social identity, your, your purpose, your meaning, your mm -hmm. sacrifice all now happens in the context of this church, which I think how you ended it with these, I have two, unless I missed one, I think two main points about mm -hmm. how this, what this means for the church and how the church yeah. then becomes this new family. Yeah. I think, <laughs> I think that could be a whole sermon right. that what, what I said just at the end could have been a whole sermon yeah. because I think what I was getting at was if adoption is a metaphor for our experience of salvation. And I think it is. I think that's clear. Um, then I think what we're going to see Paul do in the rest of Ephesians is unpack that to say this is now a way for us to live with each other as the church. Mm -hmm. And, and that uh, what we're actually doing is... Um, building a culture of adoption mm -hmm. <laughs> in our life together. And right. again, I, at the end, I rush sort of right to some very, very practical things. But I think mm -hmm. between adoption as a metaphor for our experience of being brought from death to life and being placed into this new family, and then where I ended uh, with some practical things about adopt, you know, how Wheatland is trying to um, be a place that supports uh, adoption and parents who are adopting and right, wanting to right. adopt and all of that in between. There's a whole range of discussion and thought that would be worth, you know, worth lots right. of time and thinking on. And if, and if you could clarify that, because that was one of the things that I felt, and I, I I don't think you were doing this, and maybe it's just because my daughter said something to me, and I kind of lost tra train of thought for a second. Yeah. Um, I'm not blaming my daughter. Yeah. Sure. Um, it's my fault. But it's the idea that it it felt a little like if we're going to live a culture of adoption, then we need to be doing more adoption, which I'm I'm sure there's truth to that. But it, right. it 
I, it doesn't seem to follow what you're saying in the sermon, even with that last quote by Rosaria Butterfield, her, her dad ends like, if we live in adoption, we actually start have to start adopting children to show the world that we love in that sort of sense. I remember the exact quote, but that yeah. you were using that as again, a metaphor for what it means to live in the culture of adoption. Is that correct? Right. Yeah, I was. Um, and I think, I think what I was trying to really say is that as we understand our own experience of adoption in Christ to God, that that will become a culture in our in the way in which we relate to each other. Not no. that I, I don't think I was trying to say, and I don't think anybody that I've talked to in what you know, the adoption community or would say that everybody is meant to adopt a child. I think right, that's, right, a, right. that's a totally different discussion. But the way in which we relate to one another, the fact that we have been adopted in Christ conditions and, and creates a culture that includes that, but it also includes a lot more. It includes sure. this awareness that I talked about that we're, we have all been brought in from outside and right. there are no insiders. That's, that's sort right. Of thing. Yeah. That's, and so what does it look like for us to create a culture of adoption as the church? Because that's what it is in one right. sense. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's very powerful at the end is be able to say the way this becomes an adoption culture is, is to say that, yeah, none of us, none of us have claim to this, it's all been it's all been granted to us from the outside. It's yeah. all foreign. I think and, and also the other one, which I think is that our, our heritage is not our own. We have to look to a second heritage, which mm. to me goes to this tension that you you played out in the first one. Is that and and if we use Augustine as the metaphor, we belong to a different family in a different kingdom in in some ways, mm-hmm. and we have to learn what that family culture is like, and we have to understand. And that's always going to feel a little foreign, and it's always going to mm-hmm. feel out of place. And you know, people say, oh. Yeah you know, I'm a Christian, but I really feel out of my place in my church. Good. That's, that's probably about how the way this goes. I think we all yeah. do. This. Yeah. That that's, I think that's right. And one of the things that I was, I was thinking about, and I mentioned this in the first service or in the first sermon, and this is how it sort of fits into the second sermon. But I mentioned that um, oftentimes in the experience of adoption, and I think this holds true, whether we're talking about Greco-Roman adoption or even modern adoption, there are inevitable identity crises that yeah. come up in that process. Yeah. And um, those are things that we have to be thinking about and talking about and navigating together based yeah. on this glorious picture that Paul gives us here and what it means. And always going back to the nuances of this to help us, because I don't think there's just really easy answers for some of that. That, right. that is the experience of adoption is because something has not been ideal. There, there's a yeah. scenario like adoption is out of a context of, at least in, in, in what we're looking at here in Ephesians, it's even different from Greco. It's, it's adoption from death to life. Right. And, and so there are, extenuating circumstances here this is not um just a matter of it's not like a sports team where you trade players and you go from Mm -hmm. oh i was loyal to the phillies and now i've been i've traded to the mets their rival and now i have to take on the net no this is different than that right um i don't know yeah well and i want to add something to that because i think what 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 may be missed when we start talking theologically like this, um, is that the, these metaphors are true, but the story's always, the picture's always more complex. You know, to say, uh, I watched a movie and, and use the metaphor and say the colors are really brilliant, doesn't say anything about the soundtrack or the plot or the characters. Mm-hmm. You have to talk about each of these things in their turn. And I think what we tend to say about our lives is our lives, and the one that I think dominates the Protestant worldview is morality, right? Mm-hmm. We look and we say, we've got sin and righteousness and every part of us is, is, has sin. So we're always defining our actions and our behaviors in terms of what percentage is this sinful and selfish and covered by grace. All that's absolutely true. But another metaphor of looking at this is you're struggling with, the, with leaving one identity and taking on another. And so if you simply leave it with how much sin is in my life, you forget how real the struggle. This is not just right. a sinner dealing with sin. This is also someone that's been given one false identity right. and the struggle to get out of it. And so 
as you as you add these metaphors, you layer them. You see how there's there's other ways to think through what your struggle is like. It's right. not just you just must be that bad of a sinner. You're also a person who's been trapped in identity for so long. So there's compassion. It's not just that you're not willing to overcome sin. You also right. have to grapple this other dimension and layer called mm-hmm. I've identified myself so long this way. What's good and what's right, and when I feel comfortable and don't feel comfortable. I've used that for so long, but that's because I've been in a certain family and I've been trained to think that way that now as an adoptive person, I've got to get out of that. And so it's not just a moral problem. It's a problem of identity. It's a problem right. of, it's an aesthetic right. problem. It's accepting right. one view, view of beauty and love right. and now having to get out and accept another one. So I, I like this. I think this term adoption allows us to put another layer onto the one that's so conventional to us, which is mm-hmm. moral. You're morally right. right. That's right. true. Yeah. But yeah. there's a whole nother layer also going on at the same time. And Paul's willing yeah. to address it that way. Yeah, I, I think that's excellent. And um, I think it's not unconnected to what we will see him pray for this week mm-hmm. <laughs> when he prays for his people that they will. Um, he says, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father, father of glory, um, mm-hmm may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. So he knows like all of this stuff that I've just been talking about, this adoption, mm-hmm. I, you're going to need some prayer. And then yeah. when he moves from that to chapter two, he begins to go back to that identity mm-hmm. and say, and you were dead in the trespasses and sin. This isn't just mere, like we don't always connect with this with, personal idea like we do we say oh yeah i was dead in my trespasses and sin but if we're looking at this in the lens of adoption paul is going back to that to something former and Mm -hmm. saying do you really understand how entrenched how Mm -hmm. how paradigmatic these things were for you but now you are being so i think paul is doing exactly what you're saying Mm -hmm. um I'm sure you got it from Paul. He didn't get it. <laughs> I'm sure he didn't ask me about it. But no, that's that, the way right. it unfolds in Ephesians. Right. Yeah, and that, it's so beautiful because it's so layered. And you can say, well, these metaphors seem at odds with one another unless they're all multiple dimensions of the same thing or multiple yeah. facets of the same jewel, whatever yeah. secondary right. metaphor, meta-meta you want to use. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, but, I, but and I, think, I think what it gives us is really profound language for experiences that are really profound. We're not Yes. There's not this, and I think Christians often get blamed. I saw there's that that um, Bible Project video. One of the founders talks about what Christianity really is, and and one thing he he says now, which I really like, he says, "Here's what people think you're saying when you say <laughs> yeah. you're a Christian." Yeah. And it's really flat, moralistic. You know, you're good, right. you're bad. If you're good right. enough, you go to heaven. Right. And and the Bible, yeah. although that's partially true, that's not unreal yeah. or untrue. It's yeah. it's only one small dimension in this right. massively complex reality, yeah. and. Paul for and I think you've gotten at this with John too. They they just are unwilling to bring the gospel down to one simplistic metaphor. Yes. It, it's yeah. and and Paul is really tough to grapple with, even in this mm-hmm. first chapter, because he's so yeah. complex. But right. it just gets and, more beautiful. And I think, like going back to what you said, I, I sort of got some light bulbs flashing here because if you read the first three chapters of Ephesians just mm-hmm. through that lens of morality. Although that's there, but if you only read it through that and not through the lens of adoption, then you will sort of come out with these really hard and fast simplistic categories. But if all of a sudden you're reading all of this through that larger and sort of more in-depth idea of adoption that opens up wider vistas for us, then all of a sudden you can think about some of the nuance of it in a different way, rather than just, I was dead and now I'm alive. Okay. This right. is a, a process. This is me owning, you know, all that stuff. So yeah. Well, I that way, really when, helpful. Yeah. Well, when you did it, when you say, and this is the way I had, I said at the beginning of this conversation, but this is because this is how I've grappled with it from my own reformed RC Sprolian context, which I, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't regret that at all, but right. is that predestination is ultimately a moral term. And it's not that, that, that the, the application of the crucifixion to you is always set in, in legal terms, so it was done, which I, I think is absolutely true. I don't deny that at all. Sure. But, but, but the way you're talking is that actually that's the mechanism that God was doing far larger than that was this adoption piece. It's not that that's not true, right. but, it, but the whole story is one of loving adoption, not just mitigating mm-hmm. sin, which is what he needs to do to bring you into his loving right. arms and his family. So right. if, 
so as adoption becomes a governing metaphor of predestination, which I think is yeah, exactly yeah. what Paul's doing in Romans 9, too. Yeah. I think you see a predestination is not a way of going, you'll never get into heaven unless you're predestinated. We don't know God's mind. Right. But his point is saying, I called you to be my own son and daughter. And I, I made sure that you would come because you were born to the wrong family, but I didn't let that stop me. Right. right. Yeah, that's beautiful. the whole picture of yeah. predestination, really, that I, right. I think you set up for us, which gives us it's very life giving. Yeah. And I think that's the sort of thing that even um, the Westminster divines, uh, the, the guys mm. who wrote the Westminster Confession were very aware of that. There's mm. one way in which you could take this and just, you know, use it as a stick to divide and beat and divide mm. the the regenerate from the reprobate, but there right. is all, but what, what we're seeing here is Paul using it in this metaphor, underneath this metaphor of adoption to say, can you even begin to fathom the love and the intention and the plan right. that God has in setting his love on you? Right. And that's, that's a totally different discussion. Yeah, it is. It. Because, you know, Again, families are so determinative in the modern age they're on, but then you were born to a certain family. That's it. Your life is set. There's no, right. and adoption reaches right around all of that. And to say yeah. that one is primary over the other is to say, my plan for you supersedes where you were born, yeah. supersedes your gender, supersedes your servitude, supersedes, and yeah. to see, see predestination that way is just to see how God will not let, yeah, these things stand in the way of his plan to bring us into his family, which I, mm. I think when you reset the terms in the way you approach Ephesians was just, and I even heard people say this after the sermon, people who'd studied this stuff for a while really appreciated that you, you didn't, you didn't disrupt the doctrine of predestination. You, you couched it inside this larger picture, which I think yeah. was very helpful for, for us. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, I think that's the thing that for me has been, coming from a world and a background and, and a theological identity that right. would have been absolutely appalled at this idea of in predestination and election. Oh yeah. Seeing it actually not be what it was characterized or mischaracterized as, but seeing right. it in magnifying the love and grace of right. God in eternity past and, and into eternity future right. is, is, is a different discussion than I was yeah, different. supposed to. Yeah. And the idea, tell us you brought in that, that, that there's an end and a goal and that that's what this is all pointing towards. Yeah. yeah it, it um, and I think it, it, it leaves us as I think Ephesians always does when you read, it just leaves you in worship. I think this is the point at the yeah. end of this. It just, it, there's no other way to respond to this. You can't respond to it by making it work. You can't respond yeah. by <laughs> contributing. It's really at the end, gratitude and worship becomes the only real response to this. And I think the more time I spend, even in just my own preparation for this stuff and my own wrestling with this stuff, the more I'm convinced that almost all of us, because we've grown up with it in a sense, maybe, but we do not have any imagination for how impressive, that's a terrible word to use, but just how unbelievable, awesome it is that we have this document of the scriptures and how genius it is and how, I mean, I know this is trite, but I, I, I don't <laughs> have words. True. It's Maybe true. Trite, I but true. I don't have words to express how brilliant <laughs> the word of God is. Is that, that's a dumb <laughs> thing to say, but you know, we grow, we, we grow so accustomed to it because it's everywhere, at, at least for right. us, it's in our pocket, right. it's in our phone. It's a, but this stuff is uh, to think that, uh, you know, it, 2000 years later, we are still plumbing the depths right. of a letter that a guy wrote to a group of Christians in modern day Turkey. I mean, that's, yeah. I don't know, it's unbelievable, really. Yeah, and across, across the globe, yeah. across generations of change, across cultures, across languages, it just shows you that this is this is it's true under there. I forget as maybe Lewis, I forget who was reading, was making a comment about some of the criticisms of the of the scriptures in the Genesis story. And he said, Yeah, it makes sense to me that 
across the globe, there hasn't yet been a culture that hasn't understood the depth of this, and it must just be a fiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's no way. Just, I'm, I'm. It's just on the face of it. I'm. I'm that's yeah. not an apologetic for the text. Right. It's just on the face of it. Right. It, this it's, this appeals across because, of course, it's pointing us to something that's ultimately true in in, in and through all things. But yeah. and that's its power. Yeah. So and I and I do appreciate Paul for that reason. I and I and one thing that I've said before is I think especially for reform folk is we can we can not just the moral issue as Protestants, but I think also the theological high systematic theology. And I think there's a, there's a need here to resist the, 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 the push to sort of just dump this into systematic theological categories. Right. But for yeah. Paul, this is always a lived theology. It's always, right. it's always a lived reality. Right. Yeah. yeah. You can't yeah. abstract chapter two from chapter six. This is one piece. Yeah. It's one piece. Yeah, which I think our reform folk like to like to do. We enjoy the heady space, so it's easy just to yeah. sort of put these in abstract terms. But it does seem yeah. that Paul's goal for this is not merely understanding, but it's therefore now when you when you interact with someone, mm-hmm. all of that informs how you interact, and especially if adoptions right. are metaphors you're laying out, which I think is right. Right, right. Boy, to start to ask how does that impact the way that I look at my own claims. Hmm. my own positions in society or familiar family or anything mm-hmm. boy it, it really yeah. has a profound impact on all those things. i think i think it does and i hope we discover more and more of that as we go on yeah so where, where do you got us going you've already mentioned at least a reference to where we're headed yeah keith uh, keith is up this week last sunday of the month um he is he is preaching 15 through the end of, of oh, the end of one yeah so he gets uh he gets that lovely bit about he has put all things under Jesus and mm. gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body. I'm going to tell Keith that I just want him to talk about that. The church is his body. Mm. And then, mm. no, Keith will do. Keith is is, is um, going to be preparing this without my help, which would. This is what you get for having COVID. Yeah, that's right. You that's should have right. thought about I, that. If, if you should have thought about started, that, Luke. And he would have had to. Uh, you didn't oh, well. think about it. It's thoughtless, Boy, thoughtless I, on I, your I, part to get COVID when you did. It, it it impacts everything. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, thanks, Dan. Thanks for leading yeah. this conversation. Again, I'm really grateful to um, get to continue to unpack and redress and address and all of that stuff. From yeah. And to the, and to the, to the community is, as you know, this opens things up. One thing that I find really helpful is talking to people after the sermon, because I think my, one of my goals in this podcast is to be one of the congregants who's listening mm-hmm. and how we process it. And I think hopefully to give you encouragement that there are deep things that you may not hear feedback from, but I, I know that I feel and I get from people and also just things yeah. that they may perceive that, hmm, yeah. that's curious and it gives you a chance to unpack. And I think it's it's been helpful that way. Yeah, so I'm grateful I, I for think your, it... and I also want to say something for anyone who's preached, and I, I, don't, I don't know how many in this audience have preached, it is extremely difficult, and I'm not talking for Luke, you're a rare person in my mind, but it is extremely difficult to preach a sermon and then go have someone poke holes and pester you about the sermon afterwards <laughs> they're sacred children right you you curate yeah, well, this thing carefully few pastors can can do what you yeah. do and i i well, don't know if our body really appreciates that but i hope that they do I, I think they are in one sense uh sacred children but you have to get over yourself quickly <laughs> but 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 what they are for is they are for us this is not mine this is this they are for us as a community and this is what they're meant to be done they're meant to um they're, 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 they're meant to push us to think more deeply and connect more deeply to the scriptures. And that means that some of these things have to be forgotten as soon as I've said them, please forget I said that. <laughs> and then others have to be challenged and then others have to be deepened and, and, and teased out. And so I think that's what I value. Some have to be followed. I'll, I'll just say the only one I'll, I'll put Katie Perry's in that first bucket. There, bucket. <laughs> to I'm, be forgotten. I'm okay. I'm okay think, to do that. I think, I think when I referred to her as sister Perry, Oh my Lord. I only did in your, in <laughs> In, in the set, I don't think that that wasn't in my notes. That was sort of. I a, tried a, not to make a face, but I'm afraid. Uh, <laughs> I'm afraid that was an impossibility. Was that the moment where you got up and walked out, or was that at? No, I'm teasing. Um, <laughs> no, no, but but I think you're right. But I, I it is that's not been my experience mm-hmm. um, that pastors are able to do that, and I think it's a rare gift to the community. And I, I think you're you're living out what you you actually say because mm-hmm. there's one thing you get in front and say, hey, you all need to see the life of the body as your key goal, and then preach in a way that you're untouchable, mm-hmm. but you actually preach in a way that makes it part of the living body. And I'm, I'm deeply appreciative. And for those of you who've not done this with Luke, and I hope I don't put the floodgates here, but 
I have called him on occasion, <laughs> sermon, go, I don't like that you said that. And it's shocking to me how gracious Luke is to hear that. Not always agree with me, which is perfectly fine. Right. But he's gracious to hear it and talk through it. And um, yeah. it's, just, it's a rare gift. I don't think I've said it in this cross reference, but I, I wanted to take just a space to thank you, Luke, for doing it because it is very edifying. Um, it's very helpful to the body, um, and I'm I'm very grateful for it. So thank you. Well, um, thank you, Dan, for saying that. And thanks be to God for a congregation who loves to hear the word um, mm-hmm. expounded and loves to interact with it. To me, that's the great joy in all this. Amen and amen. Thanks, Luke. We'll see you in two weeks then. Thank you, brother. Friends, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Cross Reference, a podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. You can learn more about our church and discover additional resources on our website, wheatlandpca.org.